This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, a Netflix documentary. I'll kick us off. A decade ago, a college football player was catfished. Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, tells the tale of Manti Teo. Manti grew up in Hawaii and went to play college football at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana not so very far from where I live. He was a bit uncomfortable there. He was raised Mormon, but Notre Dame is heavily Catholic. He grew up among Samoans, but Notre Dame doesn't have many of them. He's also from a warm place, and Notre Dame is not warm. Manti felt lonely at Notre Dame, and his loneliness made him susceptible to a catfishing scheme. The catfisher pretended to be a Samoan girl from California who shared Manti's faith. Manti began dating the catfisher long distance, even though he never met the catfisher, and the catfisher never turned on the webcam during video calls. Manti's parents knew about the relationship and recognized that it was foolish, but they didn't investigate because the catfisher claimed to be a Samoan Christian. They trusted the catfisher purely on the basis that the catfisher shared Manti's religious and ethnic identity. Over time, it became harder and harder for the catfisher to avoid meeting Manti in person. The catfisher feigned technical difficulties, pretended to be in a car accident, and eventually pretended to die of leukemia. Manti was devastated by the loss of his girlfriend. He dedicated his senior year at Notre Dame to her memory. The story became public knowledge, and the sympathy it generated won Manti many fans. Unfortunately for Manti, the catfisher refused to stay dead. Eventually, the catfisher contacted Manti, claiming not to be dead after all. Confused and upset, Manti didn't know what to do. He kept this information to himself. Meanwhile, journalists at Deadspin received a tip that Manti's dead girlfriend wasn't a real person. They discovered that there were no public records under the girlfriend's name. On the internet, the girlfriend was only mentioned in connection to Manti. Eventually, using reverse image search, they were able to discover the true origins of the pictures the catfisher used on the girlfriend's social media profiles. They published a story about this, and the story caused Manti enormous embarrassment. Eventually, the catfisher appeared on the Dr. Phil program. It turns out that both Manti and the catfisher were pushed into football at an early age by relatively authoritarian parents. Manti was, in the words of his own father, obedient. He followed the course his parents charted for him, and he eventually became a professional NFL player. The catfisher refused the role that was prescribed. In pursuit of an escape, the catfisher adopted an online persona, and through that persona, the catfisher fell in love with Manti. It suggested that the embarrassment caused by the catfishing badly damaged Manti's career. He was drafted later than expected, losing out on the bigger contract afforded to first-round draft picks. Once in the league, he struggled to establish himself as a dominant player. The documentary doesn't mention that Manti suffered many injuries during his career, including a foot injury at the start of his rookie year, a broken foot at the start of his second year, an ankle injury in his third year, and a torn Achilles in his fourth year. In his fifth year, he was relatively healthy and even received a single vote for Comeback Player of the Year. But after that, his career diminished. He remained on NFL rosters for three more seasons. 
bringing his total to eight when he retired at the end of the 2020 season. Manti did not want to go to Notre Dame. He went because he was advised to go, and he decided the advice was a sign that it was God's will that he go there. He claims he became interested in the catfisher in large part because he thought he was helping the catfisher get through difficult times. He also suggests that he plays football to inspire others. Watching this documentary, you get the sense that Manti has made most of his decisions hoping to please other people. At many points, he seems to espouse faith in something like karma. He thinks if he is a good person, he will be rewarded by God. This transactional understanding of religion makes him easy to manipulate and deceive. It also makes it difficult for Manti to distinguish between what he wants, what he values, and what other people want for him. Conversely, the catfisher is deeply uncomfortable with authority, rebelling first by creating a fictional character and eventually by openly taking on a new identity. The catfisher has inverted the path that Manti follows. In this respect, the catfisher is something of an anti-Manti, a polar opposite. But in the respects that Manti's family cares about, religion and ethnicity, the catfisher appears similar, and these apparent similarities allow them to stand idly by as Manti becomes involved with someone who lives by contradictory values. The catfisher does whatever the catfisher desires, even though these acts blatantly contradict the faith the catfisher purports to profess. But the catfisher is fluent in the language of faith, and this appearance of faith is enough to deceive Manti's family. Perhaps this is because Manti's family is itself only superficially religious. For the Teo clan, God is merely someone to bargain with, someone to obey in return for rewards in this life and the next. It is for this reason that the catfishing so profoundly affects Manti. It shakes his belief in himself as an upright actor in a celestial play where he does the right thing and in return his life and career go well. Notre Dame isn't a Mormon university. It has very few Samoans and it's not warm. But the Notre Dame football program often frames its relationship to the divine in terms that are familiar to Manti. The heroes of Notre Dame are upright players who do the right thing and in return get the fame and glory they desire and feel they deserve. In the course of obtaining this personal glory, the university infamously makes enormous amounts of money. Yes, college football is entirely about honor and money, but it is pitched as a kind of religious praxis, particularly at institutions like Notre Dame. Manti is fluent in this language, constantly framing his career as an attempt to inspire and uplift. His successes on the field belong to God, and because he piously acknowledges this, we are meant to root for him. In this way, his humility and obedience cleanse the earthly rewards he receives, inspiring us to pursue similar kinds of rewards in our own lives. Manti's family think they are transacting with God, but the football player's behavior is, de- is demanded not by God, but by the team, the university administration, and the NFL league office. These institutions offer vulnerable young men like Manti opportunities for wealth and status in return for unquestioning obedience. To make this obedience palatable, it is framed not as obedience to man or to man's institutions, but as obedience to God. Once the idea of God is tainted by association with these human things, the football player can only rebel against the human things by rebelling against the idea of God. What's good has been conflated with what other people want. 
So if we find the strength to reject what other people want, we all too often end up rejecting what's good, too. Instead of finding God, we find ourselves. We find what we want. But what we want is no better than what other people want. The catfisher follows individual desire. Manti follows the desires of others clothed in the trappings of the divine. But to actually find the divine, these people would have to stop reacting to the opinions of others and search for the idea of the good. It would not be enough to pursue it instrumentally in exchange for honor or wealth. They would need to pursue it for its own sake. This is, however, quite impossible. Manti and the catfisher have never been offered an opportunity to think about the concept of God in a more nuanced way. They have been offered fame and money, but they have never been offered a real education, the kind of education that would allow them to really think about things. This leaves them stuck, reacting to paths laid out for them by others. When they are unhappy with these paths, they are left to worry that their unhappiness stems from unholy thoughts. They worry that they are unworthy because they have worries, because they do not trust in the divine plan, which is in fact the plan of the human authority figures in their lives. But they are not unworthy. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. They are part of this universe, and their failures belong to it, to us, and not them alone. So, while I found very little to admire about either Manti or the Catfisher, I did find myself rooting for both of them as people, as parts of this world, parts that are hard done by, that have been all used up and spat out. This Netflix documentary is perhaps the last time we'll hear from either of them, as the NFL, Notre Dame, Deadspin, and Dr. Phil have already wrung from them every penny there is to be wrung. May they fade into obscurity and find peace in the silence. Anyway, let's hear what Helen thinks. No, I, uh, this was just a, you know, it's sort of, it's an interesting pick, I guess. Interesting, weird, maybe, because it's a sports documentary. It's part of a series called Untold on Netflix. It's not sort of an art house film or anything like that. And it didn't really garner much cultural, um, you know, credit, credit when, when it was released. But I actually think it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, and certainly one that is very, very interesting in terms of the history of the internet, especially that kind of period after the launch of Facebook, how it transformed identity and how it transformed capitalism. I think it's very interesting. <laughs> also, I had I'd just seen recently, I think, the worst documentary I've ever seen, which is also on Netflix, a disgrace to the genre. It's sort of weird, um, made up nonsense uh, film that is, is so, or a series that's so far from reality, if you if you've, know anything about this topic, and that just sort of like puts forward a bunch of conspiracy theories. Serious. I mean, it's an absolute disgrace to the genre. But this is just so funny that, you know, alongside the same platform, I think this very kind of unassuming film has a lot to say. And one of the things that you know it does really well is that it humanizes these two poles involved in the story. So you have this uh, very masculine, very, you know, religious, magical thinking, very sort of um yeah, naive kind of man and on the other side, you know, very famous and then the other side this sort of um unathletic trans woman, you know, <laughs> who's um you know, catfishing this guy and doing all sorts of bizarre kind of performances to garner his kind of um, desire. And you you kind of do feel very sorry for these people. 
And you maybe come to read them in the context of the material reality of the internet and of Facebook. I think it's interesting because each social media platform has its own massive downside. Facebook obviously came earlier than Twitter and Instagram. Instagram has its own thing, the way it sort of shapes subjectivity. That's a very different thing. Twitter is its own cesspit. But um, Facebook is an interesting one because it came along at a certain time. The internet, and it really kind of marks the commoditization of the internet. So the internet at one point was seen to be this kind of, um, you know, uh, wild frontier of experimentation and chat rooms and forums and hidden identity and things could be, um, you know, not commoditized and not really locked down in a very capitalistic way. I actually think one platform where this is still possible is Reddit. And it's because, and even though things do get policed on Reddit and Reddit is sort of, was set up, you know, if you look at the front page of Reddit, it's quite, you know, liberal, liberal leaning and quite woke. Um, and it's obviously a massive corporation, but because of the nature of the um, hidden identities, I think this identity issue is an interesting one in terms of identity politics, the commoditization of the self, and the fall of the internet from something more radical to something commoditized. So Facebook, obviously, I guess, I guess that, you know, a, a, a point here is this idea when people talk about like what queer originally meant in critical theory and what we have now in terms of like this obsessional locking down with identity, which is very capitalistic. And the queer aspect was something kind of different. So obviously, um, sexuality is related to identity. And um, sexuality, uh, in terms of we're going to like read things in a kind of um, psychoanalytic sense, is an aspect of uh, subjectivity. I mean, subjectivity as such doesn't really make sense, but it doesn't really make sense and it doesn't necessarily align with biological issues. And this obviously ties into, and I'll talk about it in a second, how Mantaiteu could have a relationship with a voice. But, you know, there's an aspect, you know, contradiction marks the universe. Human subjectivity is marked by contradiction. We are not robots. We are not like other animals. We have this sort of split at the level of subjectivity. The split is the unconscious. And this marks, this is related to our subjectivity. This marks our, our identity. And that which makes us human makes us odd and not at one with ourselves. So when we start to police, well, policing comes along, but when we start to sort of present ourselves as an identity, we can never do so in a way that reflects our actual subjectivity. And this is in a way when we try to lock it down, we have this sort of commoditized identity politics. Now we get this accumulation of identities. I'm this and this and this and this. Things like intersectionality that try to lock down and um, bring together different aspects of identity, quote unquote. But the fact is identity as such cannot be captured in this way. And this is why we have art. This is why we have music. This is expressed through the fact that humans speak. But obviously, when it comes to the market system, this doesn't really work. There's sort of a, a clash here. And as capitalism has sort of um, got further and further and further into our lives and encroached in every corner of our being, our very subjectivity, our very quote unquote self is commoditized. And how this relates to, to queerness, quote unquote, is that the idea of queerness is the idea that in fact, we are all queer because of our sexuality. In the past, 
sexuality was uh, deemed as pure and impure, different ways of desiring were deemed impure. And the queer sort of idea was that like, no, uh, we are all impure. There is no pure sexuality and impure sexuality. We are all impure. So in fact, we are all queer because we desire. And so the internet in its sort of pre-identity state is more, quote unquote, queer because it precisely doesn't lock down the identity. And in a sense, this catfishing, which is emer- which emerges at this sort of point in the internet where identity, where we become identified on the internet. You know, I, I, I mentioned Reddit just a second ago and why Reddit is somewhere where you can have more radical ideas because you aren't yourself is not there. You know, this idea that sort of, oh, all of the trolling is going to go away if we have um, our identity tied, you know, if we have sort of a passport or we have our identity tied to ourselves online. I mean, you just have to look at Twitter and the escalation of the totalitarian nature of um, argumentation there, that this is absolutely not the case, that things become lower stakes when we aren't identified, because these these things do not impact our entire livelihood when we're not identified. When we're identified, things become less true because we have to adhere to certain ideas that make us uh, more marketizable. And this is to do with the encroachment of the economics, the sort of capitalist economic system to every corner of our being. There's no outside of the market. So we have to get it right at all times. But we can never get it right because the nature of the universe is chaotic. And if we try to write side of the history ourselves and uh, be commoditized beings according to the logic of the market, we are going to end up in totalitarian logic, which is there is a right way. This is the wrong person. Therefore, we and also the logic of the market is a utopian logic, but there's no utopia in this sort of chaos moss in which we live. So therefore, we create scapegoats behind whom we can imagine that the utopia would exist if it weren't for those scapegoats. So the whole argumentation when identity becomes commoditized becomes totalitarian. Whereas in this more traditionally sort of queer, let's just say, um, non-defined identity, where it doesn't count because we are, you know, we, we, we get to be more truthful and we get to be more messy and we get to be more provocative, which is actually closer to the reality of truth as it is, not capitalist binary utopian truth. Where was I going with this? So, yeah, catfishing, in a sense, is a phenomenon that emerged around the time of the emergence of Facebook. And this is where we get this sort of place where you can claim to be one thing and be another thing. And I'm sure we've all experienced on very form- various forms of social media that we've had this at a small scale or a large scale. The number of people I know who've been catfished through things like um, you know, Instagram DMs or even on uh, the social media of dating apps. I mean, it, it's a massive phenomenon. But in a sense, you can only catfish if there is an attempt to lock down identity. If there is no sort of like, revealing or commoditization of identity. There's no catfishing. There's no pretending to be one thing or another. And also, I mean, catfish, catfishing relates to the fact that people want to be something that they aren't under capitalism, that there is some, you know, an alienation in ourselves and we, we feel at a loss and we, we can imagine that we are somebody else. But this sort of, it's almost got something in it. If we see this lineage of catfishing obsession with identity, 
and something that has marked society in a big way recently, and maybe we'll talk about it in kind of a more open form way later on, which is to do with transformation of identity. And I think that Facebook and social media play a big role in, well, it's sort of like a which came first, chicken and egg situation. Was Did capitalism need the encroachment towards identity and subjectivity in order to sustain itself and in order to grow? Or did Facebook, you know, allow this to happen? And I do think there's something in the rise of Facebook, the rise of um, commoditization of identity online, the difference between the online space and real life, how this sort of um, non-compatibility uh, and this attempt to uh, lock one's identity down and present it leaves open this um, possibility for catfishing, for pretending to be something that we aren't. And if, you know, if there is no uh, presentation and attempt at um, t- a totalizing of identity, there is no, you know, there is no uh, adopting of one identity and another if, the ident- if, the, if there is no identity to be adopted. But then I think that this does relate to um, the encroachment of capitalism uh, in the identity space relates to identity politics and um, the selling of oneself and the alienation of oneself from oneself when one attempts to present oneself and decide, I am this, I am this, I am this, because one is always not that because of the unconscious. And that this has is to do with the misunderstanding of queer theory and the commoditization of queer theory to um, justify and justify, as often happens under capitalism, through a quote-unquote radical lens. So to present as radical something that's precisely not radical, to make it digestible and acceptable for the market, um, precisely pretending not to be the thing that it is, and to give kind of academic weight to something that is merely the encroachment of identity on uh, of, of market forces on identity. The other thing I wanted to talk about was just this idea of how desire works. And I think it's emblematic of the fact that we are all queer. How somebody, yes, this is somebody who's highly religious and potentially involved in magical thinking to a large degree, but how can somebody seriously fall in love with a voice you know, and be in a relationship with somebody they've never met for four years and that they would rather be in this relationship with an imagined uh, fantasy image than with somebody in real life that they will meet and build a life with. And this is something to do with um, the way that capitalism works. You know, what is materially good for us is to make solid relationships. And we are completely discouraged from making relationships. And we can talk about this later in terms of how potentially, you know, all these things were in train, the alienation, the lack, the breaking of bonds between people, the, the breaking down of civil society before um, lockdown and lockdown just accelerated this. This is something that has been happening for a long time. The more alienated we are from ourselves, the more we buy into identity commoditization, the more we ident- uh, alienated we are from the other, the more we um, are anxious, the more we spend money. You know, So uh, the more we have to spend because we're not sharing, the more there are no spaces outside of the market system You know, in terms of um, family relationships where there is reprieve from that. So People would rather, and this is the death drive of human subjectivity, which is also because of the unconscious and the way that we're born and the sort of the best of human subjectivity. We would rather buy into a fantasy. Again, the utopian logic of capitalism is that 
there is some perfection. There is some oneness out there and a thing, a person, a commoditized person now in terms of, you know, the social media or dating apps will give us that. But really what is better for us is to accept reality as it is to build relationships, to build spaces where we can live and tolerate life and, you know, live in a reasonable way, sort of Freud's ordinary unhappiness. Um, and many people have talked about this in many different ways, picking the living flower, according to Marx. But we'd rather invest in something, pretend that might be precisely what we think we want on a fantasy level, rather than invest in reality as it is. Um, I think that's what I have to say for now. All right. Let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah. So obviously, I don't know anything about uh, football. Uh, I guess this is like American football, <laughs> um, this specific sport. Um, yeah, I, I watched the the two parts. I suppose one thing that was really striking was just just how almost beautifully naive this this man was. This Manti, this this you know boy at the time this teenager who was very, very hench, you know, like these kind of big football guys, um, very close to his family, obviously a Mormon, um, just on some level, almost kind of bewilderingly and astonishingly cutely naive, like like to the extent that you that it's almost impossible to believe. And I think later on when the story kind of comes out and some of the news uh, investigators or the news programs are wondering whether he was in on it, right? Because obviously the story of his girlfriend dying on the same day as his grandmother uh, elicited, did elicit a lot of, um, you know, as, as Benjamin said, a lot of sympathy, a lot of attention. You know, he was heralded as precisely a, a, a virtuous person for managing to cope in a stoic way with these supposed deaths, one of which uh, was real, of course. Um, but it's obvious from the interview with him that he couldn't possibly have been in on anything like this because his entire way of being towards the world is one of, yeah, a kind of externalizing simplicity. Like it is true that, that in a way he follows whatever comes from him to him from the outside um, whether it's a message from God or the expectation of his parents. But to, to that extent, he, he seems like a genuinely good guy um, and also good to this imaginary girlfriend. And um, there is something very interesting, and Helen picked up on this already, about the, about the question of desire, because actually what's interesting is that their relationship did actually work for both of them. For, for a significant period of time, because Mantai Teo was very obviously uh, involved in his sport, in his training. He was very busy. He didn't actually really have time and maybe not even inclination for a physical relationship, but, but actually gained something from the sympathetic listening and maybe even these kind of... Um, yeah, forms of encouragement, and and at one point the the catfisher uh, pretending to be Lene uh, gives uh, him advice as to how to play football <laughs> better, uh, which which from a purely sexist stereotype point of view might have given the game away, <laughs> as it were, um, that this was not in fact a woman uh, that he was talking to. Um, so 
I was actually kind of more interested in the in the way in which the relationship actually did function um, and the extent to which these kind of virtual relationships are actually something that people are having these days to some extent and that there's something that people desire and I think I've, I have recently met somebody who was having a who had a purely it's over now but a purely virtual relationship with somebody that she communicated with over the internet via video I mean they did they did look at video of each other um, phone conversations and messages and they were in touch kind of all the time but they never once met in person and therefore never had any kind of physical relationship um, and it really struck me that in this you know we often hear these stories about millennials are not having as much sex as previous generations that there is a turn towards sex negativity uh, you see this claim being made in the writing of Catherine D amongst others um, and that it's partly fueled by perhaps a kind of um, you know infatuation with the internet itself right so that the internet itself starts to play the role of lover or illicit lover almost like you know couples you know, on their phone, in the dark, in bed at night, rather than having sex with each other or indeed having children because the birth rate is massively <laughs> down as well across the world, um, most of the world, um, that they rather are engaged in a love affair with their instruments, with their, with their tools, you know, everything that Illich warned about, we could say. And I suppose... You know, from the other side, this you know this beautifully naive man, and and it's interesting in the footage from the more recent period. He he kind of looks like the Chad meme when he's younger. He looks quite innocent and naive, and he's got kind of wonky teeth, and he looks very like an adolescent, albeit a very sort of hench and sporty adolescent. And in the footage from the documentary, which is you know quite beautifully uh, artistically filmed, he looks very handsome. Actually, you have to say he looks very. Uh, you know, like he's got, he's sort of gone through this this period of suffering, and I I looked him up, and um, he has gotten married and had a child. You know, so at least you think, okay, well, this is this is good. You know, this this experience hasn't irreparably damaged him, and I think it's crucial that he says at the end that he forgives the catfisher. You know, that 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 he hopes that this person. Um, is okay, you know, which is quite gracious. You could totally imagine someone else who, you know, and, and this guy obviously, after all, lost not only his standing in terms of the public perception, was kind of embarrassed and humiliated, but also lost millions of dollars um, by not being picked. You know, in any case, you know, as Benjamin said, this is probably very detrimental to his um, his career. Um, and but nevertheless, he forgives the the person and he has this interesting moment where he talks about going to therapy and the therapist saying, okay, have you forgiven this person? And he says, yes. And then the therapist asks me, well, have you forgiven yourself? Right. And this is a, a kind of a breakthrough or at least it's positioned in the documentary as a breakthrough brief moment. And the question then in reverse to the catfisher um, it's obvious, I think, that this person hasn't forgiven themselves. <laughs> um, and it's not clear how you could. But what's really striking, and I wish they'd gone into this in more detail, is just how astonishingly committed to the bit this person was, right? Like this person, clearly, um, there's a scene where 
um, he or now she or is a transgender person or identifies as Fafafafain, which is a particular Samoan third uh, gender for, for feminine men, right, often gay men, um, does the voice, right? And the voice is really quite convincing. And it's actually quite hard for, for men to uh, mimic female voices. Um, and this character, the catfisher, talks about kind of going into a dark room, entering into a kind of persona, you know, and every time um, Mante rang, you know, just switching modes. And you think, wow, this is this is kind of interesting. Like, is this person just really wants to be an actor or something? You know, like part of the desire of the catfisher is is obviously you know, sexual, obviously confused. Um, Manti himself is, is, is asked whether he's gay repeatedly, and there's no indication that he is, but, it, but people are, of course, in a kind of prurient way, um, wondering whether that this, this um, virtual girlfriend is operating as some kind of beard, almost, you know, like in the old-fashioned sense. Like, is this virtual girlfriend a cover story for the real truth? Which, but, it, but it's more complicated than that. I, I think Mante, as a, as a student, doesn't want a girlfriend, but likes the sympathy and the company. And he's obviously a very kind and generous and thoughtful person asking about her family and so on, you know, genuinely integrated character. Um, and at the same time, so so isn't gay, but doesn't necessarily want this want the pressure of, of what a girlfriend would be because it would distract him from his his drive, which is to play play football. And it and what gets lost when he loses his confidence is his ability to play football, right? Like, and this is the crisis, you know. In in order to be able to play football or to move on with this life, he has to forgive himself. But I I was really quite perplexed by by the Lene character, Ronea, Naya, you know, this multiple um, aspect person. Um, it, in the sense that just the level of, of, I suppose, you know, what was going on there? Was, was the primary drive to be perceived as a woman, right? In the sense that Lene uses photographs, it's a bit creepy to be honest, photographs of a school friend um, uh, to pretend to be Lene. And the photographs they pick are conventionally very attractive, you know, very, you know, very pretty young girl, the, the kind of girl that you would imagine would go out with a, a hench successful NFL player, right? Like a kind of, you know, pretty, thin, kind of sporty girl who who, who is, you know, perhaps... Samoan you're looking slightly or you know has a familiarity um to to the guy um so there's the desire of of Naya to be Lene and all the names are quite similar by the way all these three aspects of this person like Lene, Renaya and Naya are all like you know uh aspects or kaleidoscopic versions so is the desire to to be a woman is it to be with Mantai specifically, is it to have a, a relationship um, that is that is at that time gay because the the guy is is a man, obviously pretending to be a woman, um, but hasn't maybe come to terms with whatever is going on with both his gender identity and his sexuality, um, and I think to perpetuate this kind of um, 
you know, wanting to be in this space of this static virtual relationship, but somehow knowing that it can't proceed. Uh, and then just kind of catastrophically making up this kind of car crash leukemia thing, which itself also seems very, very uh, unlikely, you know. And, and whilst the, the, the catfish was, was clever for its time, um, there was not nearly enough backstory, right? This person didn't actually exist beyond the few photographs that he'd stolen from his friends and some voicemails, albeit convincingly. Um, and so at that point, it was easy to kind of find out. And I, I was wondering if maybe to finish on this point, whether when we meet someone new or when someone contacts us or maybe just out of idle curiosity, how often we look someone up on the internet, actually, to try to find out who they are, uh, not because we're necessarily worried that we're being catfished or whatever, and um, which is a, ver- a word only invented in 2010. And Helen's right that it turns up at precisely this moment of Facebook in particular. Um, and, you know, scams have been around forever, like people pretending to be someone they're not, right? This is not a new thing, but the technology is new. Um, and I do, I wonder about, you know, these kind of persona like if somebody looks me up on the internet, they're going to get a whole host of like <laughs> quite messy things in some ways. Lots of things I've written, but also like unpleasant things written about me by other people, for example. Um, and how much that kind of colours our impression or how much we we take into account all of that research. So in a way, we're, we're all like the, the journalists from Deadspin now. You know, what they're doing actually is quite basic. Like we're all probably much more advanced at reverse image searches, you know, looking up records and and so on, not in a creepy stalker way, but just as a matter of course. And so I wonder how that's changed, how we relate to the world. But it's interesting that, you know, like the, the dead spin thing. So I think that, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm just going by what they presented in the documentary and how true it is. I'm not sure, but there is this classic thing of the media class to turn contradiction into opposition, right? So we talked about how sexual desire is confusing and messy and by definition like illogical just in terms of the the way that it functions it is born out of frustration and how how humans are born twice once into the world once into language but this happens a lot it's interesting because it's sort of this educated you know media but okay the the, the capitalist motivation is to oppositionalize is to have good bad you know border way to, you know, here's a problem, here's a solution, here's a border between good and bad, you know, overcome this border to get to the good. You know, it's, it's all this sort of oppositional, um, non-universalist, non-dialectical logic. And, you know, it's it, this is not to, to to speak badly of individual journalists. This is capitalism and obviously everything is part of capitalism. But um, it's obviously unfortunate if you're on the wrong side of journalists. But um, but also, you know, there's the, the issue that journalism purports to be completely truthful. But like, if you're operating by this capitalist logic, there isn't, you know, you're going to have the contradiction of truth biting you in terms of your attempt to to binarize because reality isn't like that, especially identity and gender and sexuality. So um, this guy and I've, uh, this documentary I'm working on at the moment about religious people, and there is one man in this documentary who was really cancelled, quote unquote, by the media class, partly because his belief was not understandable by a media class who was sort of educated. And so the contradiction of the events that surrounded this person that related to his faith and magical thinking 
had to be like the opposition of the contradiction, so the contradiction of his faith and the logic of his subjectivity had to be oppositionalized into, oh, the only reason for this is he's a bad person with bad motives. He's a crook. And it's interesting, the Manti Teo thing, like, you know, and it's interesting now how, you know, this is this is the funny thing about all this like identity stuff and this woke stuff, quote unquote, that if you really are buying into the logic of, you know, gender theory, uh, psychoanalysis, and that a lot of this woke stuff purports to be tied to, then you would really have a bit more um, like grace for people's irrationality, their weird political beliefs, their faith, they're fucked up or not. You know, everybody's sexual identity is fucked up. Ways of desiring. There's nothing wrong with having a, a voicemail relationship if that's what you want. Obviously, we could say that when capitalism pushes us towards having the voicemail relationship, when we don't want it, that's a problem because it's alienating not only from our desire, but also in terms of materiality and building relationships in the world with people. But some people want that and there's no fucking problem with that. But this dead spin, like, Media Witch Hunt, of course, is a documentary. You know, I don't know how bad it was, but had to paint Mantiteo as, you know, a crook or that he'd hoodwink people. And it has absolutely no tolerance for the messy nature of human subjectivity. But then I was also thinking in terms of the catfish, right? Because you were thinking about like all the different desires of the catfish. I mean, I have some ideas about um, this woman's desire, like latterly, maybe a bit more kind of difficult to explain, but. In terms of catfishing and like sort of being somebody you aren't, the trouble is precisely because of the messy nature of human subjectivity, we can trick ourselves because we are more than two people at once because of the unconscious. So when you cheat on a test, even if you know that you've cheated, you can still enjoy getting full marks. You know, So this person can still enjoy being in a relationship with Manti Teo, even if they know that they aren't really fully the person that they're, they're claiming to be there's still the ability to you can, humans so it's interesting you know i always think about it at school when people say you're only cheating yourself and it's like no but it doesn't even matter like i'm the, the cheat is still enjoying it you know but you do have to ask the reciprocal question if manti knew would he have been happy in this and i don't think he would have been i don't think he wanted to be in this kind no. of relationship no. So there there was deception that occurred here. It wasn't that they just wanted to have an online relationship and you know people like Deadspin aren't tolerant of that kind of relationship. He was tricked. Yeah. And I I do want to say as somebody who is a little younger than you guys. <laughs> we all knew about catfishing in the okay. early 10s. Everybody knew about it. As soon as Facebook became a thing, it became possible to make an account that wasn't you and to then use that account to play tricks on your friends. Before this whole thing came out, a friend of mine created an account where he pretended to be uh, a kid from a neighboring town who was a couple of years younger than he himself was. And a whole narrative was concocted in which this kid had an abusive family. You know, he lived with his mother and his mother mistreated him uh, and he would, you know, allow people that he interacted with to learn details, apparently, of this abuse that was occurring. Of course, he didn't exist. His mother didn't exist. None of it existed. But he would create this concern about uh, 
about this this kid being abused potentially and then you know people would would talk about whether they ought to do something about it and and he would say oh no don't don't do anything about it uh, you know i told you in confidence and it created this whole question of well what's really happening and what's really the ethical thing to do and he found it interesting to get people debating this in a hypothetical scenario that they themselves were not otherwise in thinking about an ethical question they themselves might otherwise never have to face but thinking about it as if they really had to face it because they were under the impression that this really was the situation. Uh, this kind of game was played all the time. I had a high school teacher who gave us an assignment to make fake Facebook profiles uh, of characters from the novel that we were reading. Yeah, this was in the 2000s. In the 00s, a high school teacher had us make a Facebook profile for all the different characters in Crime and Punishment. And then we were supposed to interact with each other on Facebook in the personas of the characters from crime and punishment and that was what we were graded on wow what what a hip liberal teacher you had trying to make things relevant he wasn't, for the kids. he wasn't a hip liberal teacher he was a catholic who homeschooled his kids uh, and voted republican and campaigned for abolishing <laughs> abortion rights okay he was you know not not that kind of teacher but he was able to use facebook in the late 2000s and early 10s we all knew about this stuff and that's mm. why when this came out everybody acted like there must be something very seriously wrong here oh wait that he basically because i think mantite is like a year younger than me so because basically yeah, what i was getting at in terms of the media oppositionalizing mantite was that he was blamed, right? And I do think he was wronged. I think he probably wouldn't have been. I mean, I think he definitely wouldn't have been in the relationship with this woman because, no. you know, it, it, you know, of course not. You know, but um, but that he he because so are you saying that because that this was all known about that this was possible that he should have known better that then the media thought that there must have been something, you know, um. Evil, evil intent on his part, because how could he get hoodwinked knowing all this stuff? Because I think the thing is, like the cheat enjoys cheating, the hoodwinky can still be hoodwinked, even though they, you know, they should rationally know better. You know, humans are dumb. Well, so I think there was that point. There were people who thought he, he should have known better. Mm -hmm. If he didn't know better, then he's a moron. Yeah. Then there were people who said he should have known better. He must have known better. He must be in on it. There must be a conspiracy of some kind. Either he was trying to get clout or he was trying to hide the fact that he was gay. So those were the, the he must have known better. Nobody could possibly be that stupid. It was that but argument. He, but he's not that stupid. magical thinking. He's not he's stupid. He's yeah. just incredibly simple. And that's I'm not just telling same. you what the positions no, no, were. No, I'm not know, adapting them. No, no, no. I know. I understand. But it, but it is it is astonishing. I sort of vaguely remember hearing this story. And, and I'm sure I, I thought... Wow, that's weird. How can you have a relationship with someone you've never met, A? And B, yeah, how, how could you not be suspicious or, you know? And people, I, everyone but, is religious, even if they don't think they're religious. But this explicit yeah. religion stuff, like that guy went to bloody the university because he bumped into somebody in the corridor who said mention Notre Dame. And he was like, God spoke to me. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but the, why not? <sighs> the third thing that I think is a, a factor here is... There is a kind of premise that someone like Manti Teo, in the position he was in as a star football player for a school like Notre Dame, could have been in a real relationship. Mm. Most football players 
are not just in real relationships, but they are seeing lots of different women when they're in college. And so the fact that he was in this kind of relationship made him weird among the football players. Mm -hmm. And that made people go, well, if you wanted to be in this kind of relationship, why would he want to be in this kind of relationship in the first place? Was he unable socially to date? I mean, he clearly tried to see her in person. So he was yeah. interested in having an in-person relationship, but he doesn't fit the kind of incel guy who is uh, a dork and, and is desperate and is therefore easy to manipulate. He should not have been desperate because of his social position on campus. There was no reason for him yeah. to be desperate. So this made it very confusing. And so I think a lot of people got interested in this because it seemed very difficult to understand how a person in his particular social position could be catfished. Not just that catfishing itself requires, say, being stupid or foolish, which I, you know, that argument was made, but also someone like him, who's as cool as that kind of football player would be perceived to be. Somebody like him who, you know, we saw a girl in this documentary go, he's intimidating because he's really good at football. The girls are, are impressed by him. Yeah. How he would not be able to have a real relationship if that was what he wanted. And he did want it. He wanted to see Linnea in person. That's what pushed this to a head and got it to the point where Linnea had to fake, where, where the catfisher had to fake Linnea's death. Right. So this other element, I think, is, is the really key element. And the thing that I think explains it is that he was a Mormon and a Samoan, and he cared a lot about being a Mormon and a Samoan. So that when he came to Notre Dame, which he only came there for this kind of strange reason, that he felt that there was a divine sign that meant he had to go there. Originally, he wanted to go to a school where there would be a lot more Samoans and a lot more Mormons. Yeah. He wanted to go to that, to a school that was more local and more embedded in his community, and which makes a lot more sense for him, as I understand it. I think the school was local. Uh, Instead, he goes to this school that is culturally very different from him, except insofar as it's committed to the college football thing. And because he cares so much about religion and ethnicity, he doesn't find himself able to make those kinds of connections with the women that he meets. Even if they're willing to make those connections with him, he yeah. can't connect to them because they don't share enough of the cultural signifiers that he's caring about and that his family cares about. And they're so focused on this that because Lene is, you know, the same kind of religion and the same kind of race, they don't even question Lene. But yeah. if he met someone in real life who seemed, you know, really in person to be good to him, who was a white Catholic... They would have questioned that. For sure. But don't you think another aspect of this, look, judging by the footage, of which there's quite a lot, because obviously he's a successful sports star when he's very young. Um, so you get a glimpse of him through the, through the years. He not just seems naive, but he's also very young. Like there's something kind of undeveloped in him. I mean, at the same time as he's, you know, this, this unbelievably fit, big sports star, like, and you do wonder about some of these sports characters and Helen would know about this more, but 
you know, where you focus on something so much, you know, that, that you become, you know, that you're brilliant, you know, you're, you're among the top in the country and for your age and, you know, you're, you're, but, but, but sort of at the expense maybe of, of sort of emotional or psychic development. And in that sense, the safety of having a relationship that doesn't threaten to become physical is actually almost appropriate for somebody but that's not like, what most no, football players I mean, do. Might be no, different. well, he's, might be he's, different, he's an unusual guy. Yeah, but he's maybe more right? like what most sports people are like. Obviously, right. like team sports are quite different from individual sports. I think individual sports are more these sports where you find these kind of obsessional characters. Um, they can kind of uh, train on their own, although, you know, people do often train in training groups. But yeah, you can get, you know, and, and in terms of women, this um, because of the way that. Um, sport and doing sport in a certain way impacts puberty. You can get this, like a massive delay in terms of sexual interest. Like this is a, he didn't seem very unusual to me as a sports person at all. But then, and, and also, you know, he maybe came from a certain background where there was a lot of material pressure for him to succeed at sport that, you know, obviously this happens a lot in America where uh, getting the NCAA scholarship means that you get free college, but also and in terms of the NFL and the NBA and stuff like that, if you uh, become a sports person, successful sports person, you change your, you know, material family tree, you, you, you take care of your entire family. And so maybe he was really dedicated to his craft in that way because he felt that responsibility from his class background. I don't know, but I mean, I don't, I do actually know one person who played in the NFL and he was quite monk-like, I have to say. But but then, you know, these big kind of they're more like pop stars often than sports sports players in terms of their personality. They talked to his friends. They talked to people who knew him while he was there. They all said that he was this model student athlete, the kind of person that you want, that someone who's very involved and very friendly and very outgoing. They didn't make him out to be this kind of shy, retiring person who uh, was only focused on football and didn't know how to talk to people. He doesn't seem to have those traits. And I think that's what made this such a story, because he didn't seem to be the kind of person that this would happen to. I think it can only really be explained by the things about him that are peculiar, which is Samoan Mormon at Notre Dame. Yeah, I mean, he did very much seem like a fish out of water in that sense. And it's interesting that these universities, you've got places like BYU that is like pure Mormon and very good at sport, um, very good at track and field. And then Notre Dame, which is like very identitarian in, in terms of like the Catholic thing, although they obviously welcomed Manti into their team. But it is interesting that there are these kind of like demographically, you know, aligned colleges, which I don't feel like you get anywhere else. Except for America. I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't know. Well, they're private universities. They're not state funded. So they can be very particular. Um, but yeah, he was determined to go there for reasons that are very strange. You had to be someone who was very, very willing to defer to authority to go to a school that, I mean, he said he did not want to go there. And even after he decided to go, he did not want to go there. He only went because of this sign. There was no reason for him to go, apart from the fact that this person told him to go. But in a way, you know, this is like kind of this like reading signs and seeking greater meaning and stuff has a sort of psychotic quality to it. But I was thinking the other day, I've got some people I know who are like very religiously into things like tarot cards and um, 
predictions of the future and stuff like that. And I was thinking, like, you know, these people are like very neurotic and normal. They just like are religious in a certain way that is really odd. And it must be both a very reassuring way to live, but a very disabling way to live. Well, and it's interesting what the person who told him to go to Notre Dame ostensibly said to him. According to the documentary, this person said to him, well, if you go to the university you want to go to, you'll just be another you know, Polynesian you know, uh, football player on a good team. But if you go to Notre Dame, you'll be Manti Teo. You'll be distinct. So that was taken as a sign. But there was an argument. The argument was very superficial, I think, and very much pride flattering and pride encouraging. So but, why would you take such a thing as a sign from God? <laughs> but that is what happened, to be fair. I mean, yeah. he goes to Notre Dame and becomes Manti Teo. I mean, that literally is... And then he's is... not happy with having done that. And then, and this is the strange thing. He's not happy with having done it. And yet he leans into it all the time when it furthers his career. When you know, this kind of Hawaiian family and Hawaiian dynamic is getting him positive attention from the press when he's talking about his family or he's, you know, he's got the tattoo and it's, it's getting him positive attention as an exotic figure on the campus. He's happy to lean into it. So he, it's interesting how he kind of played it both ways. And of course, in the documentary, he's trying to come off as, as, you know, sympathetic and a victim. But of course, he decided to go there. He decided, and then he blames God for his decision to go there. No, I think this is. I think this is unfair. I, I, think I like all, the guy. <laughs> I, I think we all make decisions often on very contingent bases, right? I've definitely made decisions based on random things, like reading something or someone saying something. You know, I think we all do that. I don't think it's it's particularly unique to someone who's this naive or this religious. And I also don't think that being proud of your success or celebrating your success is necessarily incompatible with being otherwise humble and honest. Well, and we want different things, sure. Yeah. And so sometimes we, you know, decide we want to go to a university because we like the buildings or we you know, yeah. had a meal there and it tasted good. But he didn't go based on what he wanted. He explicitly says he wanted to go to this other university. And then didn't go there, even though he wanted to go there. But what is what do we want? People don't even know what they want, and often yeah, I mean, like, I think people who get but he's he's guileless. He would admit he would admit that he wanted to go to Notre Dame if he really did want to go there. I would think. I don't How know. could he not know that he wanted to go there if he did want to go there? He's he's totally guileless. But the thing is, it's like a lot of people, for instance, externalize their desire because they can't tolerate their desire. So you know they. They put their desire on other people in terms of they blame other people for not getting what they want. Or, you know, I think it's very hard. I think one of the most difficult challenges of human life is knowing what you want and taking responsibility for it. Yeah, and exactly. then not only that, negotiating reality where you're highly unlikely to get it and be happy. Like, yeah, I, I, mean, I would love so to know hard. if he's always at every point told the story of how he decided to go to Notre Dame that way. And I'd like to know from the people around him if that's always been his version of it. If it has always been his version of it, then it's not a back rationalization for having made the wrong choice. It is authentically how he decided. And I think that's that's where I get what made this person so strange that they were the only person that, that this happened to. Only one person became Manti Teo, the center of this enormous catfishing media story. It only happened to one individual person. And it happened to this guy for reasons that are particular to him. 
That's true. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of post hoc rationalization going on here, let's just say. But maybe we can get into that on the B side <laughs> in terms of people involved in the story. Yeah, we've got to wrap up. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go over and do the B side now. Do feel free to join us over there on Patreon. But if not, thank you and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.